Well, during the month of January, we've been considering the means of grace, topical series. We normally are in a book of the Bible, and we will return in February to um, a book of the Bible. We'll be in the book of Titus, and then in March, we'll be back in the Gospel of Matthew. But we have set aside a little bit of time during the first part of the year to talk about the means of grace, which are, as I said last week, as simply as I can put it, the ways that God works in our lives. The ways God works specifically to make us more like Jesus, to sanctify us so that we can glorify Him. We're focused on the fundamentals, is the way that I put it last week. Last week we talked about the Bible as the fundamental, fundamental um, in our progress of sanctification and discipleship. This morning we're going to talk about prayer. Now prayer is a massive topic. Just consider this fact. One of the biggest books in our Bible the one that's smack dab in the middle of our Bible is Psalms. What is the book of Psalms? But 150 prayers. There's plenty of material about prayer in the Bible. So much that could be said. But I have a very narrow focus this morning. So this is kind of a qualification to say if I haven't dealt with an aspect of prayer that you're particularly fond of, it's not that... um, I'm not aware of it or that it's not important. It's that I'm zeroed in on a particular point about prayer, and that is the power of prayer. So how I want to proceed this morning is I want to establish, first of all, my primary proposition that prayer is powerful. But then we're going to just ask three questions of this primary proposition. Whose prayers are powerful? Which prayers are powerful? And how do we pray these powerful prayers? So proposition, then three questions. Let's begin with the proposition. Prayer is powerful. Why do I say that? Well, in order to prove this point or establish it, I'm going to give you a proof text. And then I'm going to spend more time on what I'm calling an impressive picture. I hope you'll see why I'm saying it's impressive when we're done. So a proof text and then an impressive picture. How can I make the claim scripturally that prayer is powerful? Because the Bible says so quite explicitly. In James 5.16, it says this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. So last week we saw that the Word of God does the work of God. The Word of God is effective to save and to sanctify the people of God. Here in this verse we see that prayer also does the work of God. It has great power in its working. Or as the NIV translates it, prayer is powerful and effective. That's my basic proof text for this morning. But I want to provide something for you other than simply chapter and verse, as important as that is. 
Additionally, I want to provide you with what I'm calling an impressive picture. Now, why do I say an impressive picture? Because it's a picture that is designed to make an impression upon us. A picture that's designed to impress upon our minds the truth of this proposition that prayer is powerful. The reason I want to talk about pictures is because I believe that pictures in our imagination do something to help us in the Christian life. If we can have a picture in our mind or visualize in our mind what is true, I think that can work on our hearts and then move us to action. So that's why I began this whole series, in case you've forgotten the picture, I want to remind you of it, of the picture from Psalm 1, of a tree that is planted by streams of water. How are we going to flourish and grow in the Christian life in making disciples? Only as we're planted firmly by the streams of God's grace, the ways that God works. So that's the picture for the whole series. The picture that I have for us this morning is different. It comes from the book of Revelation. And so I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation uh, will be in a couple of verses, but Revelation chapter 6 to begin with. The book of Revelation is written to believers who are being persecuted. John wants them to have confidence in their persecution that they will be vindicated. In other words, he wants them to have confidence that the people that are persecuting them, they will endure the judgment of God. But the people of God will ultimately be delivered. They may not be delivered from persecution, but they will be delivered from the wrath of God because they are sealed. They are sealed. But in response to their persecution, the saints in Revelation pray to God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6 to see their prayer. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Notice the language there. That's one of the most basic prayers in all of the Bible. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on all those who dwell on the earth. Eugene Peterson comments on this verse. He says that while conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn raged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have a mental breakdown? Why didn't they cut and run? They prayed. That's why they didn't have a mental breakdown. That's why they didn't cut and run. But what happened to the prayers that are offered by the saints in chapter 6, verse 10, for vindication, judgment 
upon their enemies. We're told in chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. As we read these verses, imagine a scene in the throne room of heaven. This is what it says, beginning in verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you see what's going on here? The prayers of the saints offered in chapter 6, verse 10, are doing something. When we pray, it sometimes may seem like God is sleeping. As one author says, if the experience of the saints in Revelation or anything like mine can be, they may feel like their prayers are barely making it to the ceiling or dribbling out and rustling across the floor like dry leaves. But when we turn to chapter 8, we see that our prayers don't simply go to heaven to get filed away in some glorious heavenly file cabinet never to be seen again. No, they're mixed with fire of the Holy Spirit and returned to earth in power. And when they land, they make a great impact like a bomb, like an earthquake, over 10 on the Richter scale. These prayers that go up in beleaguered humility without any fanfare return with great force. This picture in Revelation 8 inspired the poet George Herbert to write a poem about prayer and he describes these prayers as reversed thunder. Reversed thunder. Tim Keller explains what Herbert means. He says, thunder is an expression of the awesome power of God. Whenever you see thunder in the Bible, it's an expression of the awesome power of God. But prayer somehow harnesses that power so that our petitions are not heard in heaven as whispers, but as crack, boom, and roar. Prayer changes things. That vision blows my mind. Not the vision of saints who are being persecuted offering their prayers to God. We've always known that that's what the people of God what blows my mind is the way John pulls back the curtain to show us what happens in the throne room of heaven when we pray. Reversed thunder. Of all the things 
that God gets done in the world. His plans, His purposes, His wisdom executed in the world. It blows my mind that God is using the prayers of His people to accomplish that. Did you know that one of the things Revelation is doing here is establishing God's will in judgment. That's what these seals that are being opened are all about. And then right smack dab in the middle of this announcement of God's judgment, we see that he's using the prayers of the saints to accomplish that judgment. If God uses our prayers to bring about judgment on the world, isn't it possible that he might also use our prayers to bring about the salvation of those that we're sharing the gospel with? That he might bring about the sanctification of of our lives and transform us into the image of Christ? This picture is designed to impress upon our minds the power and the potency of prayer. Has it made an impression? The reason I ask if it's made an impression is because I know what we are prone to do after we leave this place today. We're to go about our life in the same way that we've been going through our life, which is through a lot of prayerlessness. Why don't we pray? Because we're too busy to pray. Is one of the things that we say. We need to get after doing things. We need to get about our work in the world. There is so much that is going on in our lives. We don't have time to pray. But prayer, friends, is one of the most practical things that anyone can do. Eugene Peterson says it's not mystical escape. It is historical engagement. Do you get what he's saying there? It's not just something for us to do so that we can grow in our intimacy with God. It certainly may be that. It's actually the way that God works in the world. That's what I want to impress upon you. So there's nothing more practical that we can do if we want to be about the most important things that need to be done in the world, then the work of prayer. I pray this vision motivates you to change your paradigm for the way you go about your life and to see that there's really nothing much more important than prayer. But with this powerful picture in mind, with this somewhat bold proposition that has been made, I am sure that there are a number of questions that come to your mind. Is this type of prayer available to anyone who prays? And will any kind of prayer be answered with this type of Revelation 8 power that we've just described? In other words, Whose prayers are powerful and which prayers are powerful? Before we go on to a practical application of what to do with this word this morning, 
think it's really important that we talk about these two questions. The first question is answered in the text that we've already looked at in James 5.17. Remember what it said. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Of a righteous person. So there's a qualification that is given there. Now, at the get-go, I want to say, I don't want to qualify prayer to death. We can give so many qualifications to prayer that we don't ever actually end up praying. I don't want to do that. But I want to teach what God's Word says about prayer. So, the prayer of a righteous person. What does this mean? I think it means that not all people's prayers are powerful and effective. But prayer is powerful, provided that the prayers that are offered are offered by the people of God. Provided that the prayers that are offered are offered by the people of God. The righteous person spoken of in James 5, so as to not discourage you, is not the super spiritual person. Isn't that the way we often read that verse? The prayer of the righteous man, the prayer of the person who is really spiritual, their prayer will be powerful and effective. No, I believe that James is simply referring to the believer, to the person who's been made right by God through faith in Jesus Christ. The person whose sins have been forgiven through faith in the gospel. The person that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to them. James wants to be clear. As Doug Moo says, prayer is not a powerful, or prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to wield prayer effectively. So prayer is not powerful for just anyone. Prayer is powerful only for believers, but it's powerful for any believer. Let me just draw your attention. You can listen. You don't have to turn there to Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. We read that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul goes on to say, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, if you're a child of God, you have access to God in prayer. You can go to the God of the universe, the God of thunder, and you can offer your prayers to Him as His child. In our sin, I want to be clear, I want to be clear about a common misconception that many people have. In our sin and apart from Christ, we are not children of God. God is not our Father. 
Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2 that we are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But if we are in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God and we have access to the Father by the blood of His Son. And so as His children, we come humbly, but we come boldly and ask our Father to give us good gifts, knowing that He will work in power. So prayer is powerful, provided that prayers are offered by the people of God. At this moment, I want to pause and say, if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus, you do not have access to the throne of grace. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You can become a child of God today. If you will simply acknowledge your sin before a holy God and acknowledge that He has provided a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins through the death of His Son on a cross, if you will repent of your sins and turn to Him, you can become a child of God, forgiven, given the Holy Spirit, and then able to pray to Him confidently. It is my first prayer this morning that if any of you are here and do not know God as your Heavenly Father, that you would come to know Him. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But then it is also my goal that we would access prayer for our own sanctification. So we've seen that prayer is powerful for the people of God, but what kinds of prayers are powerful? Are all prayers offered by the people of God powerful and effective? Well, we know that that is not the case because sometimes our prayers go unanswered, right? So which prayers are powerful? Again, I don't want to qualify my main proposition to death, and yet I think it's important that we say what Scripture says. So let me continue in this long sentence. Prayer is powerful, provided that prayers are offered by the people of God according to the promises of God. Or according to the will of God, I could say as well. Now, where do we get this? I will demonstrate this point with a simple proof text eventually, but before I do that, I want to do something a little bit different than simply proof texting this point. I like doing that. I like going to verses that simply tell us the answer. But sometimes it's important to see the bigger picture in the Bible. And that's what I want to do with you right now. If you would, please turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I hadn't until I read this great book by a man named Gary Miller from Australia. But at the end of chapter 4, we have the first reference to prayer in the Bible. Doesn't it make sense that the first reference to prayer in the Bible might be instructive for understanding the way prayer works in the rest of the Bible? So look at the last verse of chapter 4. 
we read that Seth had a son and they called his name Enosh. And then we read at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why are people calling upon the name of the Lord here? That's the question I want to answer that I think will help us understand about what the Bible is doing in prayer. Well, it's important to remember that before anybody calls upon the name of the Lord in Genesis, the Lord first called to them in the garden, chapter 3, verse 9, after they had sinned. And as He speaks to them, He makes a promise to them in chapter 3, verse 15. The promise is that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. This is often referred to as the proto-gospel or the first announcement of the gospel in the Old Testament. A promise of offspring. Now we turn to chapter 4. What's the first thing that we read in the first verses of chapter 4? That Eve had offspring. Adam and Eve had offspring. Who? Cain and Abel. Were they the promise? Was one of them the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15? Well, obviously not. Cain murdered righteous Abel. So who's left? Unrighteous Cain. And then we see this genealogy that traces the descendants of Cain um, uh, towards the end of the chapter. Genealogies are important in Genesis. Why? Because we're tracing offspring. It was announced in chapter 3, verse 15. Starts with Cain, murderer. Ends with Lamech, murderer. What's going on with God's promise is the question that is looming in chapter 4. His promise to provide a Savior through the offspring of the woman. Then in verse 25, we read that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So was Seth the promised offspring? We learn nothing about Seth and the rest of the Bible, except that he bore Enosh, or his wife did. And what about Enosh? Was he the promised offspring? Again, We hear nothing about Enosh. And so when we come to chapter 26, the people of God must be wondering, are we there yet? All we've seen since the promise of offspring is murder. Are we there yet? And in verse 26, we read, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why are they calling upon the name of the Lord? The context of this chapter is critical for understanding. The people of God have heard the promise of God, but now they're beginning to learn what we know. That sometimes the promises of God do not come to fruition immediately. And so we wait. And what do we do while we wait? We pray. They are also learning that they are powerless to bring about the promises of God on their own. They're completely dependent upon God to get that work done. And so they pray. 
Gary Miller says that prayer is simply asking God to come through on His promises. And this first prayer in the Bible teaches us something about the rest of the prayers in the Bible. If you trace this phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even the two references in the New Testament, you'll see that in every case, what people are doing is calling upon God to come through on the promises that He has made to them. This is the basic trajectory of all of the prayers from Genesis to Revelation. So it's no surprise that when we turn to the last couple of verses in the Bible, so we've looked at the first prayer, so we turn to the last few verses in the Bible, we see a prayer. But actually, it begins with a promise. Jesus promises, what does He promise? Surely I am coming soon. To which John replies, Amen. And then He prays, Come, Lord Jesus. Do you see the pattern? Promise. Prayer for God to act upon that promise. So which prayers are powerful? Are all prayers powerful? No. But prayer is powerful provided that prayers are offered by the people of God according to the promises of God. We see the same thing in the New Testament. In the farewell discourse in John chapters 14 to 16, Jesus says something that He repeats throughout those verses. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. So in the Old Testament, they're calling upon the name of the Lord to act according to the promises of the Lord. In the Gospels, we see that calling upon the name of the Lord and praying in the name of Jesus are basically the same thing. Calling upon the name of the Lord is praying according to the promises and purposes of the Lord because the Lord's name is bound up with who He is and what He has promised to do for His people. But His promises and His purposes find their yes and their amen in the sending of His Son. So now to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray according to the promises and the purposes of God. Accomplished through Jesus who is the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of of David. In other words, praying in the name of Jesus is praying according to the will of God. It's aligning our will with God's will seen in the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And so it's no surprise that in the first uh, epistle of John, he says something very similar to what Jesus said in the Gospels. If you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. He says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Asking in the name of Jesus is not some magical incantation. I think that's the way some people treat it. That we stamp on to the end of our prayers to get something done. Praying in the name of Jesus 
is coming before God through the blood of Jesus, aligning our will with the will of God seen in the person of Jesus and praying for Him to accomplish His purposes on earth as it is in heaven. And God answers those prayers. When my children want me to do something for them, one of the strongest appeals they can make to me is, Daddy, you promised. Over Christmas break, we were at the park in our neighborhood and my daughter Nevaeh saw the pool and she said, well, maybe you could take me to the Y to go swimming since it's too cold to go to Rockwood. And I made her a promise that over the break, I would take her to the Y to go swimming. Well, you know the way kids cash in on those promises. They come out to you um, at a time when you're not very inclined to acquiesce their request, which for me is usually the time when I'm in my office reading and I hear the knock upon the door. And Nevaeh says, Dad, will you take me to the pool to which I replied the way I normally reply to such requests? No, not now, but later. Maybe, Maybe tomorrow. But then she says, but Daddy, promised. It's amazing how not the whining, not the please, 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 but the daddy you promised did something um, to move me to action. Now, what I'm not saying is that if we somehow pull the right strings or say the right words, that we can move God to action. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say is to give an illustration to say that when we pray according to the will of God revealed in the promises of God, it's as if we are saying, but daddy, you promised. Or how long, O Lord, are we there yet? When are you going to come through on your promises? And when that happens, we can expect God to work in power. But if I can, just offer one more qualification. That doesn't mean that it will be in our timing. Abraham had the promise of offspring. He had to wait a minute. Many others as well. Sometimes those prayers prayed according to the purposes and promises and will of God may not be answered in our lifetime. But this is the amazing thing about the providence of God. He has chosen to not only accomplish all He has promised, you better believe that He will, but He has chosen to use our prayers to get that done. And so with that said, let us turn to our last question. How can we pray powerful prayers? Prayer is powerful provided that prayers are offered by the people of God according to the promises of God, and lastly, in response to the Word of God. You've heard my primary proposition, seen an an impressive or hopefully an impressible picture, two important provisios, qualifications, Now I want to end with a practical application. There's so much I could say. I really just want to say one thing, a little different than pray in response to the Word of God. It's this. 
Pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. It's not the only way to pray. It's not the only faithful way to pray. It's not the only way to pray within the will of God. But it is the best way I know how to train you to pray according to what the Bible teaches about prayer. And I find that it is a very neglected thing. How many of you are languishing in your personal prayer time? You're staring off into space. Your mind's wandering. You feel like you're getting nothing done. Pray in response to the Word of God. Pray the Bible. And I promise you, you will make progress. It has been the single most important thing in my prayer life over the last 10 years. Let me offer you three ways. I wish I could offer 10. But three ways that you can make progress here. First, pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. All Scripture can be prayed. All Scripture ought to be responded to in prayer. But Psalms are a whole book in the Bible devoted to prayers. Doesn't it make sense that we would become very familiar with those prayers if we want to learn how to pray God's Word? I try to read through the Psalms personally a number of times throughout the year. I'm making notes, I'm underlining, I'm trying to get a sense of the psalm. So then when I go back that next time, the more and more familiar I get with what's going on in those psalms, the more that those psalms can then become prayer, not just Bible reading and Bible study. I'm going to post a few resources online this week on our blog site if you would like to learn how to more effectively pray the psalms. Second, Use the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus' disciples asked Him to teach them how to pray, He gave them the Lord's Prayer. I mean, you can't get much clearer on if you want to know what you're supposed to be praying, go to the Lord's Prayer. You can just pray the Lord's Prayer. But again, I think it was meant to do more than simply be recited. I think it was supposed to be an outline for us, a pattern for us, a framework for us to shape the way we think about prayer and the way that we actually go about praying. So may I suggest that you simply take each line of the Lord's Prayer or a couple of lines in a day and use those as a springboard for your prayers. Kind of what George did in his pastoral prayer a little bit earlier. So for example, take thy kingdom come. You can just stop right there. And start praying that it would. Maybe start by saying, may the reign of God increase in my heart, in my life, that I would more and more come under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to Him. Or maybe pray for the lost. Pray that the kingdom of God would expand in this world. Expand in your neighborhood. Pray for our missions partners that they would be effective in their work. Pray for your next door neighbor or your child or your brother or whoever it is that the kingdom of God would advance in their lives. Third, use Paul's prayers. 
I've spoken about the Lord's Prayer. I've spoken about praying the Psalms and other sermons. I want to focus a little bit more here. Paul's letters contain a number of prayer requests that he makes of the churches and a number of explicit prayers that he offers for the churches. Like the Psalms, since they are Scripture, it makes sense that we would learn how to pray through them. I talked to somebody after the first service. They just said they've committed the main prayers of Paul to memory. So then they always have them with them as a rubric, as a springboard for their prayers. Paul asked for prayer in Colossians 4 for things that make sense um, or we're not surprised by. At the end of most of his letters, he asked for prayer that the gospel would go forth. So in Psalm 4, he says, Pray that I would have an open door for the gospel and that I would make it clear as I ought to do. So the will of God is very clearly that the gospel would go forth to all the nations and then the end would come. God's going to get that done. Do you believe that? Do you also believe that he's going to use your prayers to get it done? Why else would Paul pray for the Colossians to pray for him? If that weren't the case, give yourselves to praying for the advancement of the gospel. But Paul not only prays for the advancement of the gospel in the lives of the lost, the salvation of the nations, he also prays for the sanctification of the church. Go and look at his thick prayers and you will find that many of them are actually about the church growing in grace. And that's what I would like you to focus on going forward. Psalm, I mean, uh, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 are tremendous. I'm going to end the service with Ephesians 3. Let me just draw your attention to Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul starts praying for the church. He starts praying that they would have insight into the wisdom of God. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, what's he referring to? I think he's referring very specifically to verses 8 and 9 earlier in the chapter. So there's this grace which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Same phrase. Making known to us the mystery of His will. What is God's will? According to his purpose. What is God's purpose? He set it forth in Christ. What is it? It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is Paul's way of saying what Jesus said in the the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The goal of redemption is that all things that are out of whack with God and His will would come back into alignment with Him. That sinners would be reconciled to God, back in right relationship with God. That people in the church would be reconciled to one another and not be at odds with one another. That they would have unity It is a desire that, as I mentioned earlier, we would come under the reign of Christ, submit to Him, love Him through obeying Him. I could go on. 
It's the desire that the spiritual powers of darkness would come under submission to God. And so what does Paul do in light of this revealed will? He prays that they would come to know it experientially. And then he says that they would come to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying he wants the power that raised Christ from the dead at work in the church. And so what does he do? He prays that that would happen. Do you pray like this for the people you're discipling? Do you pray like this in the morning as you think about your life which is not quite lined up with God's will? You don't have to wait until you become a spiritual giant to pray like this. You can do it this afternoon. You can go open Ephesians 1 and start praying through it. And watch God work. Changing you to start to conform your prayers to the will of God. And then watching God work in your lives and in the lives of those that you are praying for. What is the will of God? We said it week one. Your sanctification. What is the will of God? The salvation of the nations. How is He going to bring this to pass? Through His Word and through prayer. Let's read it. Let's hear the Word. And then let's pray in response to the Word that God would get His work done in our lives, in our hearts, in the world for the sake of His name. Amen. Father, you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you. And we are now amazed that you invite us to speak back, to answer you. You have made promises in your word. Part of what you've designed is that you would then use our prayers to bring that about. We're humbled before this truth. But we pray that this truth would motivate us. Motivate us to give ourselves more fully to the work of prayer. Would you do that? I pray that this church would be a praying church. To the glory of your great name. Amen.